In part one of our series, we discussed the persistent attempts on the right to draw parallels between the Carter and Biden administrations. We looked at the rise of James Earl Carter from humble beginnings on a farm to the Naval Academy and into the governor's office in Georgia. Each step of his early journey offers insight into the development of his worldview and governing style. In part two, we do a deep dive into the first half of the White House years to understand the challenges that face the new administration, some significant early legislative wins, and the undercurrent of trouble brewing on the horizon. And now, on to part two. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. Chapter 3. A President Assembles His Team I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear That I will faithfully execute That I will faithfully execute The office of President of the United States The office of President of the United States And will, to the best of my ability And will, to the best of my ability Preserve, protect, and defend Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. In August of 1974, Richard Milhouse Nixon resigned from the presidency. By December, former Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter announced a long-shot bid for the White House. Against the backdrop of a scandalized presidency, 7.5% unemployment, and 11.7% inflation, Jimmy Carter campaigned from coast to coast throughout 1975, determined to build support for his campaign, one vote at a time. Despite being seen as a Washington outsider, Carter had been cultivating some critical relationships as governor and then presidential candidate. The outsider image was part authentic and part deliberate. Jimmy Carter was never going to be accepted by the D.C. elite, especially in his own party but he was also keen to separate himself from an increasingly toxic political environment created by Nixon. By the time of his announcement, everyone was pretty much done with Nixon, including his own party. So the idea of being an outsider worked to Carter's advantage. But as I said, he wasn't without some powerful friends. One such friend was David Rockefeller, heir to the Rockefeller family fortune forged in oil, railroads, and banking. Throughout most of his life, David Rockefeller carefully curated a philanthropic personal narrative, pouring money across the spectrum into foundations and efforts that live on to this day. But in 1973, he founded an organization called the Trilateral Commission, which has been the subject of conspiracy fodder since its inception. Not without reason, mind you. The Trilateral Commission was conceived as a non-governmental organization, or NGO, that gathered prominent citizens in America, Europe, and Japan to work through pressing trade and economic issues that could serve as a template for international negotiations. As we'll learn later in our story, some of the members of the commission, especially on the American side, would have a significant hand in guiding American foreign policy, often to the benefit of large financial institutions, not the least of which was Chase Bank, of which Rockefeller was president. More on that later. For now, what's important about the timing of the trilateral founding was that one of its charter members in 1973 was indeed Jimmy Carter. As Byrd notes in Outlier, quote, the trilateral commission gave the Georgia governor some foreign policy chops, but more importantly, he was introduced to Zbigniew Brzezinski and Cyrus Vance, two rising stars of the American foreign policy establishment, end quote. Both men would wind up in Carter's cabinet and find themselves in the center of historic events that will eventually come to pass in our tale. Conspiracists like to paint Carter as a not-so-innocent member of the commission. Perhaps this can be debated. For his part, Rockefeller kind of downplays the significance of Carter's brief tenure in his memoirs. Quote, The inclusion among that first group of an obscure Democratic governor of Georgia, James Earl Carter, had an unintended consequence. A week after Trilateral's first executive committee meeting in Washington in December of 1975, Governor Carter announced that he would seek the Democratic nomination for President of the United States, end quote. Throughout his memoirs, 
Rockefeller treats Carter as somewhat inconsequential in the history of the commission, though he does note with some optimism that, quote, Carter's campaign was subtly anti-Washington and anti-establishment, and he pledged to bring both new faces and new ideas into government. There was a good deal of surprise then when he chose 15 members of Trilateral, many of whom had served in previous administrations, end quote. In fact, Carter, the anti-politician who famously loathed politicking, made several appointments meant to appease establishment players, though it would never fully ingratiate him in the Beltway. But it's important to disabuse this idea that the Carter White House was nothing more than a collection of country bumpkins. While his closest aides and allies were certainly part of his inner Georgian circle, Carter would take great pains to build coalitions from Ted Kennedy and Thomas Tip O'Neill in the liberal wing, along with deeply entrenched foreign policy thinkers from Trilateral, to selecting Walter Mondale as his running mate, a rising star within the Democratic Party. Apart from a carefully cultivated team that combined establishment players and Georgia loyalists, newly elected Jimmy Carter had as favorable of a congressional support system as any incoming president could hope for. Again, Byrd. Quote, On paper, this Democratic president seemed to hold a strong hand on Capitol Hill. Democrats controlled the House with 292 votes to only 143 Republicans. Senate Democrats possessed a filibuster-proof majority of 62 senators to only 38 Republicans. But the Democratic majority was itself split between liberals and conservatives, the latter invariably from the old Confederacy." End quote. Early on, Carter made a decision to involve Vice President Mondale in all key decisions, an innovation that we take for granted in this time. After much deliberation, he appointed Brzezinski, known as Zbig, as National Security Advisor, and Cy Vance as Secretary of State. There was a question as to whether the roles might be reversed, but Zbig was a polarizing figure both in the White House and on Capitol Hill, so Carter thought better of putting him in a more prominent role. Zbig was of Polish descent and carried with him a deep resentment toward the Soviet Union. He viewed nearly every foreign policy decision through this lens, which would serve as an asset at times, but more often, a liability. Thus, most consider the selection of roles a wise choice by Carter in retrospect. He even contemplated replacing the CIA director with two deep establishment liberals, Ted Sorensen, JFK's speechwriter, and Bill Moyers, the noted journalist. Both were curious choices for this particular role, but it spoke to Carter's desire to make good with the New England Democrats. Ultimately, he would select an old Navy buddy named Stan Turner to head the agency. Carter had a mind to actually retain the current director as he was thought to be a competent chief, and Carter would muse after his presidency whether it was a mistake to replace him. Replace who? Oh, George H.W. Bush. Oh, that's who. One small anecdote that speaks to Carter's respect for tradition was a decorating note. Upon arriving in the Oval Office, he noticed that the president's desk was different from the one President Kennedy used. In fact, he was right. So his first official act as president was to requisition the Resolute Desk from storage and return it to the Oval Office, where it remains to this day. Carter also tapped a former volunteer-turned-close associate, Jody Powell, to be his press secretary. Together with Hamilton Jordan, which is apparently pronounced Jordan in Georgianese, not Jordan, they were considered the new faces of the White House, which irked several members of the media luminaries around D.C. who were unsure what to make of these fresh-faced Southern boys in blue jeans. Nevertheless, Powell and Jordan, Zbig and Vance, and Carter and Mondale set out to make history and restore faith in the White House. Oh, and I should mention that there was one more unofficial official who would become a permanent fixture in the White House and at the president's side. As Carter's chief domestic policy advisor, lifelong ally, and future biographer once remarked, quote, the Carters don't have any friends. They have each other, end quote. Rosalind Carter cut a poised, stable, and earnest presence much like her husband. No one questioned her position in the administration or as her husband's confidant. She was anything but a yes woman and much more than just a sounding board. Rosalind Carter was an advocate with a voice, especially surrounding women's issues. As Byrd writes, quote, As a guest on Meet the Press and other television shows, Rosalind projected a polite, soft-spoken image, but her words were wholly feminist in substance, end quote. With the team in place, a firm policy agenda, and a Democratic majority in Congress, all that was left to do was govern. 
Chapter 4. It was a very good year. It's amazing the things that we remember as a people. The things that kind of stick in our minds. Read my lips. Tear down that wall. Dukakis's helmet. You're no Jack Kennedy. Howard Dean's scream. Mission accomplished. Grab her by the... Please stop it. We get the point. Okay, all right. But point being, sometimes the strangest, most unintentional thing leaves a lasting impression, for better or worse. Here's Bird. Quote, Carter addressed the nation for the first time since his inauguration on February 2, 1977, in a televised speech focused on the need to conserve energy. Carter was wearing a beige wool cardigan. Rosalind tried to persuade him to ditch the cardigan for a blue blazer, but Carter consciously chose to appear less presidential, end quote. One of our most urgent projects is to develop a national energy policy. As I pointed out during the campaign, the United States is the only major industrial country without a comprehensive, long-range energy policy. For all the advice he solicited and took from Rosalind, perhaps he should have heard her out on the cardigan issue. That said, initially, this was received pretty well by the nation and the media. It's interesting to note that his approval rating in the first six months was 75%. But Republicans would relentlessly trot out the image of Carter in a cardigan for years to come. Nevertheless, the Carter team went to work on Capitol Hill to try and log an early win. Given it was his first major pronouncement, Carter had a lot riding on an energy bill. From a legislative and allegorical perspective, it's a great place to start because it truly captures the complicated nature of energy policy, the legislative process, special interests, and Carter himself. It took months to wrestle through an expansive but muddled bill through Congress. In October of 1978, Carter got his energy bill. The bill created the Department of Energy and provided incentives for domestic energy production with a particular emphasis on coal. This reflected the nation's ongoing desire to break from the dependence on foreign energy sources, which was heightened due to the first Arab nation supply shock earlier in the decade. Because coal was still so cheap to produce relative to natural gas, hydraulic fracturing or fracking didn't take off until the early 2000s, it led to a spike in coal and domestic oil production. Now that's something that's largely lost in the discussion from the Carter years. The balance of the measures in the bill were designed to build a renewable energy infrastructure and encourage large-scale conservation. It gave incentives to utilities to conserve energy, required efficiency standards for home appliances, penalized the automotive industry for emissions, and provided seed funding for wind and solar to get off the ground. It was classic Carter, part ideological, mostly practical and without much thought about the impact that it would have on the larger economy, so long as it didn't expand the federal deficit. As Byrd writes, quote, Carter generally believed in market-driven solutions. He stubbornly resisted pressures from Senator Kennedy and other liberals to consider imposing price controls on oil and gas. His policies pushed oil prices even higher, which in turn promoted higher domestic oil production, and that eventually resulted in a decline in oil imports, end quote. So as much as the energy bill was a mixed bag, up until this point, the U.S. didn't have much of a policy to speak of. Now, in hindsight, the upside was the investment in a renewable future that would slowly persist despite the Reagan administration's reversal just a few short years later. One can only imagine how much further along we would have been without the interruption of subsequent administration policies. On the other hand, Carter's belief in the market would allow further shocks down the line without price controls. And yet again, if you're in the oil and gas industry, you generally have Carter to thank for the decades of growth that they experienced, something that is completely lost in retrospect. One last note on Carter, the environmentalist. While he's generally seen as a green president, famous for installing solar panels on the roof of the White House and pressing the nation into developing renewable energy sources, these factors were less about environmentalism and more about conservation, something that completely fits Carter's frugal persona. Carter's ability to wrestle difficult subjects into legislation was quickly earning him a reputation as a technocrat and a wonk. One way to reflect on how the nation viewed their president in the early days is through the lens of pop culture. 
For example, here's a clip from an infamous Saturday Night Live episode where John Belushi as Walter Cronkite hosts a call-in show with Dan Aykroyd's Jimmy Carter. I'm an employee of the U.S. Postal Service in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Last year, they installed an automated letter sorting system called the Marvex 3000 here in our branch. Yes. But the system doesn't work too good. Letters keep getting clogged in the first level sorting grid. Is there anything that can be done about this? Well, Mrs. Horbath, Vice President Mondale and myself were just talking about the Marvex uh, 3000 this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, I do have a suggestion. You know the caliper post on the first grid sliding armature? Yes. Okay, there's a three-digit setting there where the post and the armature meet. Now, when the system was installed, the angle of cross-slide was put at a maximum setting of one. If you reset it at the three mark, like it says in the assembly instructions, I think you'll solve any clogging problems uh, in the machine. Oh, thanks, Mr. President. By the way, I think okay. you're doing so there's a couple of insights to glean from this impression of Carter at the time. The first was the belief that Carter seemingly knew everything about everything. It was lighthearted and well-meaning at the time, to be sure, but it would also provide a glimpse into another aspect of his personality that would become increasingly detrimental and over time stick to the president in a negative way, and that's myopia. Oftentimes, it seemed as though Carter focused too much on details better left to others. Every briefing that crossed his desk was not only read, but contained his notes in the margins, lest anyone think that they could get away with a half-assed memo. One of the earliest stories that came to symbolize Carter's myopia was a rumor that he personally signed off on every request to use the White House tennis court. Though debunked by the White House secretary, it was true that requests had to be made in writing because of the sheer number of tennis players in the West Wing. It was just another example of Carter efficiency and attention to detail. Though it wasn't him signing off on these requests, the mere fact that a form even existed was enough to provide fodder for the White House press corps. It might seem like a bizarre example to include in a series on Carter, but it's illustrative of his relationship with the press corps bound and determined to find fault in the Georgian at the helm. Tennis request forms, solar panels on the roof, a cardigan sweater, these pieces would begin to paint a picture of a man who appeared small in the face of large problems. Nevertheless, Carter's first year in office saw the president continue a legislative winning streak if winning is judged by volume and activity. As Byrd notes, quote, the administration's first six months were not without substantial accomplishments on the domestic ledger. Economic growth for much of 1977 was running at a robust 5.2%. In early May, Congress enacted Carter's $20 billion economic stimulus package and soon afterward, the president won a job bill for poverty-level youth and a one-year extension of the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, end quote. This was the type of red meat the Democratic Party was hoping for. Domestic initiatives to combat poverty had taken a back seat since the LBJ years, and the Democrats were keen to restore their image as defenders of the poor and the working class. So from this standpoint, it was a solid first six months for the Carter team. In addition to these measures, the administration expanded the number of food stamp recipients, and Carter began an all-out progressive assault on the judiciary, appointing a record number of women and black judges to the court. But not all of Carter's proposals would age well in progressive circles. For example, it's largely believed that Ronald Reagan was the great deregulator determined to set the markets free. In reality, Carter was really the one to pull the regulatory threads as he was a believer in the markets. In June of 77, he began the process of deregulating the airline industry, which brought down prices and increased competition in the marketplace for several years. Of course, as we now know, it eventually led to massive consolidation in the industry and would leave the government powerless to intervene during periods of abusive behavior. All right, so far so good. The country was generally approving of their strange and calm new president. Carter seemed on top of everything, was getting along with the Democratic Party enough to wrestle key pieces of domestic legislation through Congress. Inflation had cooled out slightly. Jobs were returning. Poor people were back on the agenda, and there wasn't a whiff of scandal, much to the chagrin of the press. As Byrd remarks, quote, every reporter in town wanted to emulate Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, end quote. Carter continued his legislative agenda unabated with the passage of an amendment to the Social Security Act. It was risky, but necessary. Because prior administrations were loath to increase Social Security deductions, 
They were falling desperately behind inflation, and there was a fear that the funds would eventually run out. Carter's amendment increased the tax on anyone earning more than $25,000, something Republicans would characterize as the, quote, largest peacetime tax increase in American history, end quote. And they weren't necessarily wrong, but there's no question that it was essential to protect the fund. He would also make the difficult decision to cancel a very expensive defense initiative that everyone knew was a bust, but no one previously had the courage to confront. The disastrous B-1 bomber contract. The B-1 program was outdated, and even the military knew the planes were substandard in the modern era. Yet canceling any military program was seen as heresy. Frugal Jimmy Carter had no such qualms, and so he handed the Republicans yet another eventual talking point by doing the right and difficult thing. On the flip side, as there always is with Carter, he stopped short of cutting the military budget and instead increased it by 3%. Domestic reform, however, continued to roll, but not always in the direction that the liberal wing of the party favored. For example, he signed a civil service reform bill that reduced protections for workers by implementing merit-based rewards. He also failed to veto a tax bill that made its way to the Oval Office for signature despite being furious that it had gotten this far saying he couldn't, quote, tolerate a plan that provides huge tax windfalls for millionaires and two bits for the average American, end quote. So he countered with a proposal to increase the capital gains tax, but found little support in either party. Carter believed that tax cuts in any form would ultimately stoke the flames of inflation. Again, he was a balanced budget hawk who believed in austerity. So because inflation soared after that, it might seem like Carter's instincts were correct. But we know that inflation actually reared its head again due to the oil shock of the coming Iranian revolution. But in this way, Carter created a narrative that stuck to him rather than the circumstances, and it seemed like he participated in resurfacing inflation rather than quelling it. Carter used words like hard choices and austerity exactly at the time the government needed to ironically invest in the economy, not tighten its belt. As Byrd notes, quote, it was not so clear that government deficits were the major cause of inflation in the 1970s. Labor Secretary Ray Marshall pointed out that the fiscal deficit in 74 was only 5 billion, and yet the inflation rate was 9%. Two years later, the deficit had spiked to 66 billion, and the inflation rate had fallen to only 5%, end quote. These are the types of historical inconsistencies present in Carter that would ultimately lay the foundation for his demise. But in the immediate, it was an astonishing record of legislative victories unrivaled since LBJ. The one piece of the puzzle that frustrated Carter was his effort to pass the Labor Law Reform Act, which would have aided union recruitment and penalized corporations who attempted to thwart unionization. It was a terrible fight. Corporations enlisted support from Republicans and Southern Democrats to block the law in the Senate. After months of trying to revive it, Carter had to finally relent. Nevertheless, a comprehensive energy plan, shoring up Social Security, appointing black and female federal judges, amnesty for Vietnam-era conscientious objectors, cancellation of an expensive and unpopular military program. There wasn't a lot of sex appeal, to be sure, but it was the hard work of governing that was required to provide stability and accountability in the nation. And it seemed as though the nation and economy were responding positively to this renewed sense of calm and capability unemployment came down by 1.5%, inflation fell to 4%, and GDP increased by an eye-popping 5%. But the seeds of discontent were already in the ground. The media just couldn't bring itself to be overly positive about this exceedingly banal White House. The New York Times tepidly praised Carter's nuts-and-bolts approach, but also called his administration, quote, dull, terribly dull, as if that mattered. Perhaps more troublingly, however, was the cool reaction Carter and his team continued to receive from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. As Byrd writes, quote, To the consternation of many liberals, Carter seemed to be governing more as a Teddy Roosevelt progressive Republican than a Franklin Roosevelt New Deal Democrat. Carter's instinct in the face of a growing federal budget deficit was to balance the budget, and that inevitably alienated his liberal constituencies, end quote. There's a good deal of truth to this sentiment, as we'll cover. The Carter team lived somewhere in the no-man's land between Keynesian theory and the ideas developing out of the Chicago School of Economics. And perhaps Carter would have challenged himself to dig deeper on economic policy and do a better job of reading the economic tea leaves if he didn't fall so deeply 
for a mistress that many had warned him about. Chapter 5. The Lure of the Siren's Song Jimmy Carter's foreign policy aspirations were remarkably clear and incredibly lofty for a peanut farmer from the Plains who hadn't served in any federal capacity. Sure, he had Zebig and Vance, along with the support of several trilateral commission members. But his appetite for foreign policy exceeded nearly everyone's expectations. On his list upon taking office was ending apartheid in South Africa, making human rights a condition for U.S. financial and military support, strengthening detente with the Soviets, and truly opening trade relations with China. Oh, and he wanted to bring peace to the Middle East. You know, just a run-of-the-mill to-do list for any new president who had only ever served as a governor. Before tackling any of these ambitions, however, Carter would get his Ph.D. in foreign affairs with a prickly issue a little closer to home. We are here to participate in the signing of treaties which will assure a peaceful and prosperous and secure future for an international waterway of great importance to us all. But the treaties do more than that. They mark the commitment of the United States to the, to the belief that fairness and not force should lie at the heart of our dealings with the nations of the world. It was an issue that no one really wanted to touch. Since its construction, the Panama Canal had been a thorny subject. Many considered the deal to forge a pathway through Panama a crowning achievement of Teddy Roosevelt's administration, though it was mired in controversy from the beginning. Hailed as one of the most important economic and infrastructure achievements of the 20th century, the Panama Canal paved the way for trade to increase demonstrably in the Western Hemisphere. Roosevelt pitted Nicaragua against Panama and kept everyone guessing as to where the canal would actually be built. For several reasons, Nicaragua was actually favored as it seemed more feasible from a negotiation standpoint. But Panama was by far the more logical route. Ultimately, Roosevelt pulled off what many consider to be a diplomatic coup by signing a deal to construct the canal through Panama. The only problem of historical note is that no one in the Panamanian administration countersigned the treaty because it wasn't really yet a sovereign territory. It technically belonged to Colombia. A bloodless coup, quick change of hands over the isthmus, and an executive declaration later, and Roosevelt had his deal. Over the decades, as one might imagine, this was quite a contentious issue for the Panamanians who viewed this as a brazen act of imperialism. I thought it worth a quick history review because it plays into an important part of Carter's personality and why he fought an uphill battle to essentially give the canal back to the Panamanians. Carter proposed a treaty that would allow the United States unfettered access to this important trade route, but hand ownership back to Panama. There were many, not exclusively Republicans, who saw this as a sign of weakness. Forget how we got it. It was ours. There was a legitimate concern on all sides that any new treaty with the Panamanian government could be dicey considering its leader, Omar Torrijos, had come to power under a military coup. And you know how we feel about coups that we didn't start. Anyway, Carter took a two-step approach to the deal. The first was to sign a treaty that would place the canal itself in a permanent state of neutrality, but allow the United States to intervene militarily in the event of any threat to the status. The second was to gradually sunset U.S. ownership and hand full ownership and operation of the canal over to the Panamanian government by the year 2000. Many Democrats saw this as an unnecessary risk, especially in the first year of Carter's term, where it seemed like everything else was coming along just fine. Republicans pushed back hard against the treaties by attempting to add poison pill amendments throughout the process. Ironically, one of the staunchest supporters of the treaties came from one of the most conservative voices in Hollywood, John Wayne, whose first wife's family had close ties to Panama. Anyway, after a pitched battle, the treaties were ultimately ratified, and Carter had his very first foreign policy victory, and it was important on several levels. First off, it projected an anti-imperialist shift in U.S. policy that stood in stark contrast to the Soviets. 
Some, however, would view this as U.S. capitulation and weakness as Republicans both feared and took advantage of. But it also served notice that this president would be undeterred and push forward with unexpected savvy to right what he personally viewed as a historic wrong. It also helped build credibility in foreign policy circles that the United States had grown more rational in the post-Machiavellian Kissinger days and that it was ready to do business fairly. The popularity of the deals was certainly relative. Senators in more conservative districts would pay a heavy price, losing their seats in the next election in large part because of their support for the treaties. Ultimately though, Carter would pay the heaviest price, but indirectly. The deal would be seen as yet another chink in Carter's armor when it came to the projected toughness when it mattered most in the second half of his term. Carter's success in navigating contentious canal treaties through the Senate emboldened him. The steady hand and beyond-his-years wisdom of Cyrus Vance and the pugnacious chirping of Brzezinski awakened Carter in a profound way. No matter how many had warned him, the lure of the foreign policy siren song was too tempting to ignore. Like so many U.S. presidents and other world leaders before him, Carter was intoxicated by the prospect of healing international wounds and righting historical wrongs. Carter would go on to learn the hard way that foreign nations had their own minds and interests. He may have been more of a gentle soul with an empathetic view of the world, but he was still the leader of the United States, and the United States had accumulated some baggage over the years. Jimmy Carter's appetite for foreign policy, though, was boundless, bordering on arrogant. Many of the issues he tackled were well beyond his control and above the pay grade of those around him. One particular weakness was the lack of a sophisticated intelligence apparatus. The Carter team was too often surprised by popular sentiment in other nations and instead willing to take the word of their diplomatic counterparts. Sometimes they ignored real on-the-ground intel from their own ambassadors. And sometimes they misjudged the sentiment of the American people with respect to certain issues. But to Carter, everything was possible if just done with love, an open mind, and kindness. It was a complete reversal from the Nixon-Kissinger days that preceded them. When Carter surveyed the globe, he saw historic possibilities. Just a few years prior, Henry Kissinger had opened a secret back channel to China. Now, Deng Xiaoping was signaling a willingness to open relations with the U.S. under Carter. The Shah was firmly ensconced in Iran and bending to Carter's admonitions to do better on human rights. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was open to negotiating with Israel, thus laying the groundwork for the historic Camp David Accords. Fidel Castro was interested in communicating with the new U.S. president, whom he viewed as genuine and authentic. The Soviet Union appeared ready to soften its Cold War stance. Everything seemed so utterly possible. If only the world would cooperate and everyone would just see things Jimmy Carter's way. Here endeth part two. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, welcome into post-show musings, everybody. 99, what was your uh, first response that uh, was just captured off mic there? <laughs> Am I Jimmy Carter? Why would you say that? If only the world would cooperate. If only the world would cooperate and see things my way. Yeah, if only. I actually think it would be a beautiful world. I do too. I really do. Yeah, people would be like mean, but like funny, but nice. There would definitely be a sarcastic tinge to the, to the planet. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe a little overly sensitive to. How dare you? What? <laughs> Me? <laughs> you feel a lot. You feel everything. And, you know, that can be painful. That can be painful, right? Yeah. So that's why so that's why I'm saying like it would be great if everybody was kind, but I'm not sure how much relentless sarcasm you might be able to take in return. That's true. Yeah. 
the tennis courts thing also really spoke to me. Tell Why? me I wouldn't. Why? Tell me I wouldn't. <laughs> oh my god. Personally, be like, sorry, mm, I don't think you've done your work today, so you can't use the tennis court. Oh, not yeah, but you would have had you would have had the best like spreadsheet and process. It would have been done in like a a table, you know, and ranked choice. Definitely tennis ranked court choice. Voting. Yes, yes. <laughs> it would have been pretty great, actually. It'd been very efficient. Yeah. The Resolute Desk featured in National Treasure. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's mm -hmm. a movie? Is that the Nick Cage movie or is that the, the Ben Stiller one? No, that's not at the museum. Not at the museum. You know, right, I also right, love right. that one, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who doesn't? And yeah. it has a matching, it has a matching desk, I think. That was like a whole thing. Like mm. the matching desk. Where? I don't know. In National Treasure? Yeah. Well, there are knockoffs because I had to go and do a little bit of research on the desk. So the desk was in storage after JFK's assassination on purpose. They just sort of wanted to, out of homage, like retire everything. Mm -hmm. But in Carter's mind, which is so funny that like, we're all just people, right? We're all just like human beings. Carter never met Kennedy, which was kind of amazing. Well, I shouldn't say it's amazing. It just, but it's a short period of time between them sort of like, you know, coming of age. And Wait, what happened to Kennedy? It's a short period of time between them coming of age and amazing that they wouldn't have crossed paths somehow, especially because later in Carter's life, like Ted Kennedy would kind of be part of his undoing, strangely. But Carter idolized Kennedy in a lot of ways as well. And one of the things that he, his heart sank when he walked into the Oval Office. This is this guy's first time in the Oval Office when he became president, which is just, I mean, it's bananas that he was that far removed from the whole thing. And when he walked in, his heart sank because he's like, wait, where's the desk where John F. Kennedy Jr. was hiding? Because that's the image that America remembered was mm. the young president with the son who was playing inside the desk and coming out of the door that was constructed to hold Franklin Delano Roosevelt's leg braces because he needed a place to hide them mm. because he didn't want to show weakness to the country. Some great little nuggets of history there. Fun. Yeah, I'm looking it up so to see if this was something that they made up in National Treasure. Well, there are replicas. Well, there was the the National Treasure lore is that there's one at Buckingham Palace also, <clears throat> but I don't know if that's true. It's not. Why would they have the American eagle insignia on the front of a desk in Buckingham well, might, Palace? It might be like a matching. Yeah, but we we fucking beat like them. A fraternal twin. No, we beat them. Let's see. Took our country away from those lousy Brits. Queen Victoria had a desk, looks like. Queen Victoria. So that's, I'm not so tight on my- I'm skimming this. My royal history I don't here, know. But this is confusing. That's got to go back to- Okay. So Queen Victoria had three tables built from the Resolute, like the ship. Oh, okay. So wood, of wood that came the from the same- given to President Hayes was Cool. One. Cool. So I guess, you know, Rafa Fug behaves. Yes. Yeah. So this is 18, ooh, when was Hayes? 80. 1880. Okay. At least this is when the they were manufactured. Yeah, that's announced. during the presidential malaise period. Inconsequential presidents. Buchanan, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur. Fun. Yeah, anyway. and in National Treasure, he like pops out. There's like a little, like a box that you have to do, you know, mm. and then he gets like a little key, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> That's where I get all my history from. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, apparently, Nick Cage has got another movie out and you could rerun this podcast every month and you could say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me ask you a question. Okay. How do you feel about Jimmy Carter so far? Seems fine. Yeah. I think they should have renamed it the Cardigan. Carter again? Cart again. Oh, just just replace the D? Yeah. Cart again. That's it. I mean, it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Was House of Cards based on him? <laughs> Isn't Frank Underwood from Georgia? Or is he? I've told you I've never seen House of Cards, right? Mm. But his wife is his confidant. He's got like a, you know, the Southern drawl. He's like a nice boy, but like he's a real dick, obviously. I think my impression there is that it's almost like the uh, photo negative of the Clintons, like the ruthless mm. Southern, you know, is puts that on where this. Is he supposed to be from? 
I almost said Atlanta, but that's not what I meant, obviously. Frank Underwood. Where is he? Is he modeled on anybody in particular? I feel like he's not. He's from South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. I got a big bone to pick with South Carolina right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, inside joke. I don't, it doesn't say if he's based on anybody. Oh, wait, background and description. Sorry, this is, there's a lot of Wikipedia work in this episode. I don't, this is his, like, fucking character background. He shouldn't have a real Wikipedia. Like, this isn't a fan page. <laughs> this isn't, like, houseofcards.wiki. This is Wikipedia acting like he's a real person. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. Who is Frank Underwood? Well, 99 looks that up. As far as what's coming next, make sure you check out what's going on over on YouTube. We actually just posted, at the time of this recording, we just posted a video that will now be a couple of days old. It's actually our reflections on the State of the Union. Good chance that we're also going to re-release that on the pod as well, because there's some things there that are really scratching my brain. That, uh, that I wanted to share with Unfuckers. So good chance we'll re-record that and drop that maybe early next week as a topical. You notice that we're back into the rhythm of having show notes out and we're getting our topical creams done. We're getting the full unfuckings. So thank you for bearing with us while we got our poop in a group in the beginning of this year. I think we're in a good place. Part three of Carter will wrap things up and it is going to be the second half. It's going to be sort of the decline. So we've seen the rise of the Carter years, kind of the the salad days where it seemed like things were going right. And then what I think you'll you'll find if you didn't live through it or you haven't, you know, really studied this period is that the last two years of the Carter presidency, to me, the only the only word I could come up with to describe it is like a mudslide. I mean, anything and everything that could go wrong and present a challenge to this president happened, and it happened in such a short period of time. And you could see that the people around him were beginning to lose faith. The country was beginning to lose faith, and other countries were beginning to kind of, I think the knives were coming out, let's say, to, for not just Jimmy Carter, but for the United States. So no matter how much he was trying to overcome that baggage that we spoke about in this part, the baggage was still there. And there were some people with an ax to grind against the United States, and they were all too willing to take advantage of the, the the mudslide in order to make it happen. So part three is going to be kind of depressing. But I think, it I, again, the reason to do this is to go back to the Biden parallels, to look around us, to kind of zoom out for a moment and be like, so what was brewing on the horizon that was set to derail this presidency? And is any of that applicable today? We're a very, very different country with a very different ruling class than we had back then. I mean, this was really another person that we're going to bring into the mix here is Kissinger, because even at the end of the Nixon and Ford days, Kissinger never went away. And in the, the amount of levers that he was pulling in the background to kind of undercut the Carter administration just goes to show that he was truly one of the biggest assholes that ever lived. And it's such a, I'm so happy that Jimmy Carter is is at least still alive as of this recording and probably have to check that. But um, as happy as I am about that fact is as pissed off as I am about the fact that Kissinger still draws breath on this earth and gets accolades from people and even, you know, gets to he gets like quoted still in places. He's still asked to like speak and reflect on things, which is just madness considering just how fucking evil and incompetent this man was throughout his entire career. So anyway, that's what we have to look forward to for part three. Then we're going to be wading into some tricky waters thereafter on the full on fuckings. So that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. But I am excited to get to it and I am bracing myself for the feedback and responses that we're going to get to that. Make sure you go and check out the neoliberalism series if you want to brush up on the roots of neoliberalism we actually have two more drops to finish out our neoliberalism week uh, i think there's going to be five or six videos in total talking about the whole timeline history and the roots of neoliberalism to kind of understand that we've got some economic things that are going on and we are still at least once a week maybe once every 10 days or so trying to do something that is more topical that can convert into a topical cream but also is like a topical uh, piece that we that we have to, you know, just kind of keep things fresh on the channel. If you can, and if you haven't yet, 
please go to the YouTube channel, go to at UNFTR on YouTube and subscribe to it. The numbers are uh, incredibly important to us right now. We're a quarter of the way to our goal of hitting the 4,000 watch hours. It's kind of neat that we're at like a thousand watch hours right now, but we need to get to 4,000 to get into the creator's circle. And then we can, you know, we'll take things from there. And uh, we appreciate everybody's support who's helped us to this point. Don't forget also, you can go to unftr.com to find out all the different ways to support the show. Uh, memberships have slowed down. That's totally okay. I understand it because we weren't putting out uh, the product as frequently as we had promised to. So now that we're back on track, Hopefully you can find your way clear to supporting the show with financial membership or just by purchasing our native roasted coffee in partnership with the native coffee traders on the Puspatuck Reservation. Remember, it's totally organic. It's fair trade. It's shade grown, bird friendly, delicious coffee. You can pick up my favorite coffee, the Mellow Maynard, if you'd like, or you can just get Unfuck Your Morning or Unfuck Your Afternoon or have it decaffeinated Unfucking if you'd like. That is still very much a core part of the business model to support this show. So if you are a coffee drinker, all we ask is that you drink this coffee. I'll turn it back over to 99 for some final reflections here before we go out for the day. Wow, it's a mouthful. Well, I was going to say you could also support us by buying books from our bookshop. Yes, so what books did we use for this episode? We used David Rockefeller's memoirs. Memoir. <laughs> How am I supposed to say it? Memoir. Fuck. We have David. Armoire. 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 It's like. Memoir. Where are all my war reservoir? I have a war problem. I, you don't think I? you're French. I don't think I'm French. I you really know you don't. are? <laughs> I know I'm French. Are you Emily in Paris? Memoir. My wife watched that show and really liked it. Is it good? Yes. You no. dig it? No? I mean, yes, no. Is she problematic, the, the character? No. She's not? Is she annoying? Yes. Okay. That's what you love about her. It is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and she's Phil Collins' daughter. She. Excuse me? Lily Collins. She's Nepo baby. She's, a, she's Phil Collins' daughter. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. No. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Spoiler, basic white guy alert. I really like Phil Collins. I don't care who knows it. How about that? I think everyone already just knew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's so integral to the Miami Vice years. You cannot separate Tarzan? Phil Collins from Miami Vice. Fuck Tarzan. Talk of Miami Vice here. Please don't, please don't sully this little diatribe. Okay? We're talking Glenn Fry, Dire Straits, Phil Collins, I mean, the, the the music was so important. Of course, Jan Hammer. I mean, who, you know, you can't deal without Jan Hammer, right? I mean, I know. I couldn't get by without Jan Hammer. Uh, uh, somebody I used to work with gave me a bootleg copy of every Jan Hammer track ever recorded. And I was so happy about that. You found one CD? And then, yeah. And that, why'd you say it like that? Because who, why are you I don't smirking? know this man. Jan Hammer? Really? Come on. Okay. Well. Such a child. I know. Anyway, um, Phil Collins, amazing. That, that thank you for telling me that. So uh, the memoir of David Rockefeller, uh, not necessary. A good little bit of research. Uh, I'm you know kind of fascinated, obviously, by the banking world. So that's originally I've had this book for a very long time, and that's originally why I had it, um, but not necessarily to buy. But I have to say that Outlier by Kai Bird is. Tremendous. So if you are interested in the Carter years, uh, that was our primary book love resource. So yes, go to bookshop.org slash UNFTR pod. Slash shop. Slash shop slash UNFTR pod. Mm -hmm. And buy some books. Yeah. Fill that brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. What else? 99? Uh, my Google said LBJ and Ford for Frank Underwood. I don't know. Ford? Um, take umbrage with the article I read. And by red, I mean skimmed. There's a guy that we won't be doing a series on. So obviously we're going to hit Reagan, probably do Obama in full at some point. And, and, and maybe not even this year. But, you know, if as we go through our little presidential phase, we'll probably do those. I can't imagine being able to put a full episode together on Gerald Ford. Maybe I just, there's I, more that you're missing. Apparently, if he's the, the basis for Frank Underwood, I, I did not see that coming. Hmm. Noted anyway. murderer, Frank Underwood. Yeah, maybe maybe Ford killed a guy. Brick killed a guy. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> All right. We good? Yeah, I think so. Cool, man. 
All right, as always, Unfucking the Republic is engineered by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. It is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. I'm still thrilled to have her back by my side. I already told you that during show notes, but it just, for the people that don't check out show notes and now that you're back uh, in a full unfucking, it's just so nice to be in the room with you. It just creates a little air of magic and also you help me, uh, you prevent me from uh, tripping over my words. All our original music is composed by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com if you want to check out his stuff, right? You can go to our website to find all the things that we talked about before. The coffee, the membership, the support, the uh, links to the YouTube channel. Oh, not up there. Do we have that up there? We have the YouTube. It's in the footer, but we we should have like a, a more prominent. Hey, we should start putting the videos on there. Hey, more to do. And coming soon, folks, coming soon. You're not going to have to go to Substack to see the essays and everybody that is a member on Substack, just to repeat and reiterate this, you are going to get a notification of where you can go to get the essays and you'll still be notified in the same exact way that you are now. We have a lot of subscribers on Substack now that will be coming over to the website so that everything is housed in one location. And what's really cool about the way that 99 constructed this, if I can humble brag about her for a moment, is when you go between the episodes and you go to the essays and you you kind of get to see everything, the resources that we pull for the shows, the show art, all of the clips with complete with timestamps for the clips are in there for the show itself. If you just want to check out the episode and obviously you can listen in line and do that as well. And you'll be able to link directly to all of the essays that we've ever produced all in one spot. It's actually rather complicated. And hey, how do I know that? Because 99 had to record a feature length video explaining and walking me through the back end of it when she went away on holiday for a couple of days. And I looked at it and um, I think I wept. I went through all the stages of grief of like, <laughs> I can't do this. And and then exited my, my grief phase in just pure and utter amazement and admiration more, even more, as if that was possible for you. More admiration, just miraculous what you've built. So I'm excited that we're going to be exiting the Substack phase of our uh, little career here, and everybody will be able to just go to our website. So there you have it. That's all I got. Me too. All right. All right. We'll see you soon on fuckers. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel. Check everything out and subscribe if you haven't. Bye. Broken record.